Well, good morning. Hello. Uh, if you've not been with us before, there's quite a few visitors in. Um, we've seen loads in this book. This book of Ecclesiastes is absolutely packed. There is just so much in it, it is bursting. I've had loads of conversations with people in recent weeks about just how helpful this book has been and how much stuff there is in it for us to unpack. Um, I think it's really helping challenge us, make us think about life under the sun, as the writer to Ecclesiastes, the teacher, calls it. Um, he begins reminding us that life under the sun, a lot of what we spend all our time doing under the sun, is meaningless, which doesn't mean that it hasn't got any meaning or it's pointless. It's probably better translated as the word breath or like a sneeze, really. Life and the stuff of this life is like a brief sneeze of time. It's over quickly and it's pretty confusing. And we've summarized the whole message of this book so far as probably being this. Life is short, so live it well. Life is short, so we need to live it well. But then we kind of tweaked that a couple of weeks ago and thought maybe well is a bit confusing because we might think we know what well means, what living well means. And we've seen that it's probably better to say life is short, so live it wisely. Live it wisely. Because the majority of Ecclesiastes talks about wisdom, talks about what wise living looks like. And I think it's been really challenging and really helpful. If you've not yet, all the sermons so far are on the website. They're well worth listening to. Because life really is short, and we want to live it wisely. And in the chapter we've just read, the teacher really wants us to make sure we live lives that honor God, that put him first, and that are known for honoring God and putting him first. And while I think when we read through it, it feels sometimes a bit like a random collection of phrases. Like it feels like this chapter could fit into the book of Proverbs, where things are kind of feel a bit more messy sometimes. I think this passage is actually written really deliberately to focus our minds uh, on what is going to help us the most. And there's so much in this. I was saying to Danny earlier, I could happily preach on this for an hour. I won't. Don't worry. I don't plan on being here for that long. But if I don't cover something that, you, that leaps out at you, please come and chat to me afterwards. I, I promise I've thought about it, or I hope to have thought about it. There's so much in this chapter that I think could be really helpful. Because in this chapter, the writer is bothered with the sort of people we are known as being. He's really bothered about our reputation. Have a look at verse 1. He says, a good name is better than fine perfume. A good name being a good reputation is better than smelling nice for a bit. So he says that being known as someone who's wise, good, God-fearing, having a God-honoring life is far better than being someone who looks good in the moment, fits in maybe, achieves a bit, but ultimately wafts away like the smell of perfume when someone walks past you. He wants the people who read this chapter and who read his book to be known as people who live good lives, wise lives. So to do that, he makes us think about something, but he makes us think about something that we don't really like thinking about. Have a look at verse 1. He almost says, because a good name is better than fine perfume, the day of death is better than the day of birth. He carries on. Verse 2, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. Verse 3, frustration, meaning sorrow, mourning, sadness, is better than laughter. Because a sad face is good for the heart. Verse 4, the heart of the wise, the main attention of the wise, is in the house of mourning. Right at the start of this chapter, he tells us to remember death. Remember death. Death. Now, I'm aware that there are people in this room who've experienced the pain of death, some quite recently, 
And significantly, and the last thing I want to do is to be glib or light about this. I don't want to be flippant about it, and I don't think the teacher is either. No, death hurts. Losing people we love really hurts. We've seen the damage that it caused, even in the news in the last 24 hours. And it's right and it's good to grieve. And that grief is going to hit us differently at different times, at different stages, and in different ways. But grief, grief isn't what the teacher's talking about here. No, instead what he's saying is, is that if we want to be people who live wise, godly lives, then we're going to be people who do not forget the reality of death being our final destination. The teacher wants to grab us by the shoulders and make us look at something we don't like looking at. And he says, look, this is where you'll end up. However you choose to live your life, you're going to end up here. So don't ignore it. Don't pretend it isn't going to happen and go to a house of feasting, verse 2. So don't pretend everything's okay. And don't run to the house of pleasure, verse 4. Don't run to whatever's going to make us feel good in the brief moment to try and mask the pain that death tells us. No, he says that is a foolish way to live. Instead, he wants us to remember death. He wants us to live with a right perspective on life, knowing that we will die. Listen, he says, to the sermon that death preaches to us. He says the day of death is better than the day of birth, not because it's a happier day. He's not saying that in any way whatsoever. But he's saying it's a better day because the coffin preaches a better sermon than the cot ever will. Because the coffin reminds each and every one of us that one day too we will leave this life under the sun and we'll stand before God in eternity. See, wise people, he says, live life aware of that day. So don't be a fool. One day they'll put you and me in a box in the ground. So what will anything on this earth matter then? Now that doesn't mean that we're to be morbid and miserable all the time. No, not at all. Someone who's learned the lesson that death teaches is generous and loving and sacrificial. Look at the ultimate person who ever lived, Jesus. He wasn't morbid and miserable all the time. And he knew death was always his destiny. No, he's loving, sacrificial, giving to others because people who've learned this lesson, they know that the things in this life are not permanent. We know nothing in this life lasts. It's all loaned to us by God so we can use everything we have generously for him and to love others. And one of the best things that death can teach us is something that if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll see Richard's brought out a few times. Death teaches us that we're not God. The world does not revolve around us. And one day we'll leave it. So don't pretend we are God. Don't pretend like we're not going to die. No, we need to admit life is painful. Life is hard. So admit it. Face that pain head on, the teacher says. Now I'm aware this is very easy to say from the front. Not quite so easy for us to live out, is it? And I know that too often I'm guilty of this. But we can be experts at putting on our good face, can't we? Pretending we're living in the house of pleasure. We might admit to maybe a crumb of pain, maybe a crumb of sin, because we're all sinners and we live in a fallen world. So we're just going to specifics. It's more comfortable to admit those things, isn't it? In truth, a lot of us, if you're anything like me, we don't like going down to the house of mourning in public. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? We feel a bit awkward about admitting that life is painful. And it hurts. But the teacher wants us to stop and think for a minute. What pains or hurts or even sins 
might we be trying to ignore right now? Where are we putting on a brave face? Are we squashing hurts down because actually admitting it embarrasses us? Maybe even what sin that's causing us pain are we hiding? See, the teacher says to do that is foolish. No, we're to prefer the house of mourning. And that's hard, and it is costly, and it might even be embarrassing. But it's better. It's wiser, because preparing properly for our death means we'll live life better. In fact, the teacher says there are two consequences of remembering death. This whole theme of remember death hangs over the whole of this chapter. He says that death teaches us to want to live wisely. And secondly, death teaches us to pursue righteousness. Death teaches us to learn to live life wisely. But then death teaches us to pursue righteousness. So death teaches us, first of all, to learn to live life wisely. So knowing that we're going to die, knowing that we're not God and that death is the end, the teacher wants to show how that should change us. What will learning to live wisely look like? What he tells us. Look at verse 5, first of all. We're going to be people that are going to be willing to listen to other wise people, even and probably most especially when they're willing and confident enough to criticize and rebuke us. The teacher tells us that knowing we're not God, that we are going to die one day, means we can be open to the criticism and correction of wise people who love us and care about us. In fact, he says, if we just surround ourselves with people that are going to be laughing all the time and jolly and encourage our bad behaviors, well, verse 6, he calls that the laughter of fools. And it's that word again. It's meaningless. It's breath. It'll pass. It won't preserve us. Straight off the bat in verse 5, we know that's hard, don't we? (laughs) We enjoy hanging out with people who make us laugh who we have a good time with, who are fun. And it won't be too serious if we say something stupid. And then when someone does call us out on something, how easily can we bristle and get defensive and irritated, angry even? I'm sure we've all known people who, when they've been challenged on something, the first thing they do is blow up and maybe even get really horrible back. Now, the teacher tells us that's not what wise people do. If we want to learn to live wisely... Do we need to learn to accept correction from people who love us? Which is a challenge. It's a challenge in two ways. Because in reality, there may be people here this morning who've got someone in their head they're thinking about who I need to have that difficult conversation with. I don't think there's ways they're living that are particularly honoring to God. Maybe there's people we need to rebuke and call them out on things that are not wise in their lives. Not because we think our way of doing things is better. It's never from a state of being, I'm better than you, so do it like me. Never like that. We shouldn't rush to do this either. There are often things happening behind the scenes that we might not know about. But when we see sin and foolishness, are we willing to take the risk and speak to someone? But on the flip side, that means if someone comes to speak to us about something in our life, even if they're not entirely clued up, how are we going to react? How are we going to respond? There are people in this room that I've had conversations with over the last year or so that I've been terrified about having. Because I don't know how you're going to react. Part of that really scares me. That's a part of my character I don't like, but it is the truth. I don't like having those difficult conversations. But I am so thankful for people in this room who've received what I've said graciously and gently and with the love that it was meant 
And I'm also aware there are people in this church who've had the confidence to call me out on stuff when I've been a Muppet. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being willing to do that. I love the fact that we're a church here that, where these conversations are able to be had. The challenge of this is, will we be willing to do this when necessary? Even as teenagers, have these conversations. Don't be afraid of the difficult conversations. Don't be afraid of asking for feedback from people who you know and trust. See, knowing that we're going to die means we know that we're not flawless. So we should be able to do this first with one another Lovingly, patiently, and gently, and we'll get it wrong, but we should still be seeking to do this. But moving on, learning the truth that we're going to die means we won't take money too seriously either. Have a look at verse 7. If we do, we just leave ourselves open to being an idiot. We leave ourselves open to extortion or extorting others or even being bribed. Thinking that money is going to give us what we need makes us foolish, he tells us. Wisdom. Living with a right perspective on life and living it for the right reasons is far better. Now, they're both good. Like money's not an evil thing in itself. Look at verse 12. He says that money and wisdom are both good things. But only one of them is going to do us any good after we die. So which one should we spend most of our time investing in? And which should we be the most happy to, go, to get rid of and give away? But learning the lesson of death means that we'll also learn to be patient. Verse 8, he says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. So learn to wait. Be patient. Because what's the opposite of patience? Well, weirdly, the teacher here doesn't say that it's impatience. What he says here is that patience is better than pride. Pride, which is really us saying, my way is best and right. My timing's correct, actually. So if you can do it in my time, that'd be great. Well, of course, pride's impatient but it's pride at its root. So learning to live wisely, pursuing wisdom, means knowing that we're not God, means we will be willing to wait and submit ourselves to the frustrations of waiting, even when we might not like it or want to. We need to wait on God's timing, regardless of the situation. Learn to wait. And also, don't be quick to get angry. Verse 9, anger's another sign of that same sort of pride, isn't it? When we don't get things our way in our time, we're angry. It's a reaction we have when things don't go the way we want them to. And what do our pride and our anger say about us? Well, verse 9 tells us, he says, anger lives in the lap of fools. Where a fool is, where someone who hasn't learnt the lessons death teaches us, there we'll find a quick temper. Now again, I'm aware this might be something we battle with. We've all got different temperaments. But our temperaments don't excuse not fighting this. Our natural impatience, if that's what we're like, doesn't excuse getting angry quickly. I mean, we know we'll never reach perfection in this life. We're going to see that later. But the question in this verse is, how quickly do we get angry? And are we growing in patience? Are we fighting that anger when we feel it rise up? The teacher says that learning to live wisely means learning to control our anger more and more. Not on our own with God's help. But what's the direction of travel? And living wisely, remembering the lesson of death, will keep us from getting stuck in the past as well. Verse 10, it'll stop us wishing we can go back to the past and just live like life used to be. Because living in the past is only going to get us stuck. I'm sure we all either know somebody, or at least know the stereotype of somebody who says, oh, I wished things were like they were. 
as I said a couple of weeks ago, for Christmas we were lucky enough to go to Disneyland Paris. I still wish we were back there. <laughs> it's brilliant. But if I spent all my time harking on about how brilliant that was, I wouldn't be enjoying life now, would I? Don't do that, the teacher says. Looking forward to the shadow of death teaches us to live wisely now. And it's good for us to learn now. It's beneficial for us now. It's not just good for us after we die. Look at verse 11. It benefits us under the sun in this life, on this earth, now. If we're people who are pursuing learning to live wisely, we'll be people who live a radical and remarkable life now while we're still alive. The knowledge of an eternity changes everything about how we live life now. Probably because learning to live wisely, most importantly of all, means we're going to think about God at all times. We're going to see where God is in every situation. God suddenly appears in verse 13, doesn't he? He's not been mentioned so far. Verse 13, consider what God has done. In every stage of your life, always consider what God has done. What he means here is, consider the fact that God is sovereign and the times of your lives are in his hands. He reminds us what he's already told us in chapter 3, if you need to go back and read that. Can we unbend something God has bent? No, of course we can't. So we can and we must trust God with the situations, times, joys and pains of our life. So when times are good, verse 14, it's okay to be happy. Just because we've learned the lesson that death teaches us doesn't mean we're not to enjoy good times when they come. No, enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with that. But when times are bad and tough and hard, when the death and the illness and the hurt and the pain do hit us, we need to remember that God is just as much involved in those times as he is in the good times. So we can and we must trust him through them. This is hard, isn't it? <laughs> this is really difficult. I don't want to stand up and say, yeah, do this, carry on. It doesn't come naturally to us. Instead, we grow in learning this too. When the diagnosis comes, when the phone calls come, when the illness hits and the battles of life are hard, None of us naturally do this. I think back to when Jamie and I discovered we were probably never going to have children. Our first response wasn't, brilliant, I can trust God. Of course it wasn't. It was tears, it's weeping, and it's pain. And I know many people here who've known those sorts of emotions over the years. But in those emotions, it's then learning to trust God, isn't it? To remember that no matter what, he is sovereign and we can trust him. What we need and what thankfully and Jamie are so thankful for is loving, godly people around us who, when we told them about our pain, reminded us of those truths. That's what church is. That's why we need each other. That's why God designed us to be living in community. That's why Sundays are so important for us to get to. If you're not here, you're missing out on opportunities to do this. Because this is wisdom, isn't it? Learning that in every situation, in all pain, in all joy, in every time of our life, God is still God and we're not. But we can trust him because he loves us. And we know more than the teacher did. So the teacher had a strong understanding of God's love for his people from the history of Israel. But we've got a stronger understanding of God's love for us because we see what he's done to save us. Romans 5 tells us this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us in Jesus God says to us I love you 
I have loved you in the death, burial, and resurrection of my son in your place. And I will love you forever. So you can trust me wherever I lead you. Because my plans for you are always good. Because they all lead eventually to me. Yeah, life under the sun involves a lot of hurt and tears. But when we cry, we can also trust God's plan for us through the pain. We don't praise God for the pain, but we praise him for his purpose through the pain. I haven't got time to go into this more here this morning, but if this is something you're struggling with and battling even today, speak to someone. Don't leave this church without speaking to someone because this is wisdom and this affects the entire rest of our lives. Because when we learn to live wisely, we'll learn the most important thing. We'll learn what we can never know. Have a look at verse 23 onwards. This teacher, he said all the way through this book, I was determined to seek wisdom and pursue wisdom. Verse 23, our oh, real wisdom's beyond him. Real, true understanding of God is beyond him. Wisdom taught the teacher that, as I've already said, there is only one God, and that position's taken. And God's ways are far beyond our understanding completely. We can't ever understand God and his ways fully. But when we learn that, we see that we can trust him with what we don't understand. So will we seek to learn to live wisely? Will we seek to learn to trust God, to let him be God and learn our limitations? Will we help each other do that by challenging, rebuking, encouraging each other to do that more and more? So death teaches us to learn to live wisely, but death also teaches us to pursue righteousness. Now by righteousness, what I mean, just to be clear, is doing what is right and wanting what is right. And by right, correct, I mean not by our standards, not by the standards our society tells us, but by God's perfect standards. And frustratingly, the key verse in this passage in understanding what the teacher says about pursuing righteousness is verse 20. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Oh, that's a bit of a kick in the teeth, isn't it? Especially when you couple it with verse 29, it's even worse. This only have I found, says the teacher. God created mankind upright, but they've gone off in search of many different schemes. Oh, God created humans originally to be righteous, upright, fully acceptable to him, meeting the standards he set. But the reality is that instead we just run after him, run away from him, sorry, after every scheme we can find to find our pleasure and entertainment and joy. And the crushing reality is, is that there's nothing any of us here can do that will make us righteous enough before God. And yet we still fool ourselves, don't we? Without even consciously thinking it sometimes, we can find ourselves thinking, oh, I'm sure I can be good enough to earn God's favor in my life. So we try and live what we think are good lives. We kind of make a code for ourselves to live by. There's things I don't do, things I do do. And we think that is going to give us a good, easy life. And yet, verse 15, the teacher smashes that daydream into pieces again, doesn't he? In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Life doesn't work the way we wish it did. It certainly doesn't work the way films tell us it will. Being good by any standard, even if there's a difficult road to get to the end point, doesn't guarantee a happy, easy life. And even worse, 
Bad people don't get lightning bolted by God when they do enough bad stuff. That just isn't what happens under the sun. That isn't how life works. So don't spend your life, verse 16, thinking that your good living and your righteousness and wisdom is going to keep your life easy and long. That's a lie. That's foolishness, he tells us. But he's also very clever because he knows on the flip side that when we think, well, I can't do anything to earn a good life anyway, I'll do what I want. He says, no, don't do that. Verse 17, that's not an excuse to do whatever we want and live as hedonistically as we wish to. Don't think that because we can never earn a long and happy life from God that we can just go to town and live exclusively to please ourselves. No, verse 18, we need to grasp both truths. We can never be so good that we earn an easy life But living however we want is just stupid and reckless. Instead, he tells us the balance in verse 18. Learn that fearing God is the way to live life wisely and pursue righteousness. That means wanting to honor and please him more than anything and anyone else. That is always the wisest and that is always the most righteous way. Not to earn an easy life, but because it's wise. It's so easy to believe the lie about Christianity that is kind of everywhere around us. The lie is that there are two types of people. There are good people and bad people. And the good people, well, they're like us. They're the ones that come to church on a Sunday, and they look like us, and they do things the way we do them. And the bad people, oh, it's them out there. Oh, those people that don't go to church, oh, they're the bad people. That is just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, as we've seen verse 20, none of us are good. None of us, not even one of us. And the danger of believing that is that we think when bad things do happen in our lives, oh, I must have done something bad. Oh, God must not be pleased with me. That's just not wisdom. That's not what the Bible says. Because the Bible says there are two types of people, but they're not good and bad. They're forgiven and not forgiven. By God's standards, we're all messed up. And the people who have been forgiven by God will want to live for God, fearing letting him down, fearing not pleasing him by what they do, but not trying to earn righteousness that we can never earn ourselves. This does affect the way we live. Knowing that we're all messed up, that we're all sinners, as the Bible calls it, means we won't be too bothered when people say bad things about us, behind our back or to our face. Have a look at verse 21. The reality is that if they knew the truth about what we're really like, they'd have far worse to say, verse 22. So don't be bothered with what others think about how good you are, how well you're living your life. Because God knows the truth. But the teacher also wants to warn us. He wants to warn us to see our sin. To see what sin is like. To see what doing what makes us good, what makes us feel good, sorry, is like. Even when we don't get our heads around that. He says it's a snare. It's a trap. In verse 26, there's this picture of an alluring woman attracting someone to come and do something he shouldn't. And it looks so good. It looks so pleasing. It looks like freedom. I'm just I'm living freely. It's fine. But the teacher says that is a trap and it will chain us like a prison. We should run away from it when we see temptation coming. We should run away from any small sin, no matter how small we see it to be, with everything we have. Because otherwise it leads to destruction and death. See, when we stick around, when we convince that thing we know is bad, but it's not that bad. When we spend our time dabbling in that, it's just, it's just a little white lie, isn't it? It's just a harmless bit of flirting. It doesn't matter. It's just one cheeky text. It's fine. It's just a little bit of money I'm going to take. It's just a little, well, whatever it is, the teacher says, no, it is not. He says it is a snare 
and it will lead only to death. I've quoted him before, but I think the Puritan John Owen puts it particularly well when he says this. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Don't think of it as something harmless. If you're dabbling in something you know is wrong, even today, don't let yourself dabble anymore. Run away from it. The shocking thing about Jesus teaching in the New Testament when he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. The shocking thing about that is that he means it. It is far better to enter the kingdom of heaven with only one hand than to not get there at all. That's the teacher's message here. See, that's kind of what verse 27 and 28 are all about. And there's a bit of controversy and confusion about these verses. It looks in those verses like he's just a bit anti-women, doesn't it? That's not what he's saying. I want to be very clear about that. He's not some horrible misogynist. What he's saying is, look at all the people around. Look at all the ruin sin has done in all the people around. The idea here is not, oh, men are more righteous than women. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, righteous people, they're one in a million. They are so hard to find because, quite frankly, they're impossible. But he's right, isn't he? Sin's ruined all of us. And as we've talked about this, maybe you've thought that yourself. And so the reality is that when we leave this life under the sun, none of us qualify to go and be with God in eternity. We've not met his standard, so we can't live with him. So that might raise a question. If we know that is the truth, how can any of us be like the person in chapter 8, verse 1, who's got a bright face and whose hard appearance has disappeared? How? If this is true, then we should be despairing. Because when we all die, none of us is righteous enough to be with God. And he told us back in chapter 3 that that means we'll face judgment. And we'll rightly deserve punishment. Well, there is a glimmer of hope here. And it is that one man in verse 28. See, there is one upright man. There is one righteous man. There is one man who was good enough. And we know perhaps clearer than the teacher did who that righteous man was. It was Jesus, the son of Mary, who lived a life that was completely perfect, completely righteous. He lived a life that was good enough to stand before God and say, I was good enough. And what does he do with his own life? Romans chapter 5 again. You see, at just the right time, when we were still sinners or powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. Christ died for us. But what does that mean? Did he just die to show us how bad sin was? Or to show us how much he loved us? No, later on in 2 Corinthians 5, we read what was really happening there on the cross. God made him, who had no sin to become sin for us. So that in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. Our Jesus had no sin of his own. He was this one righteous man this chapter talks about. But on the cross, he takes all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our foolishness, all of our disobedience, all of our failings, and he takes the punishment, the judgment from God that they deserve... But not only that, on the cross as well, he doesn't just take on all our badness. He gives to us the very righteousness that he himself earned. The perfection, the right standing before God that he had. This righteousness that we could never get on our own is given to us because of the cross. And all of our filth is taken away. See, this is what a Christian is. 
Not someone who does good things or believes certain things or goes to church regularly. It's somebody who knows they can never earn God's forgiveness, but believes Jesus did in our place. It's someone who believes that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserve, and he offers us his perfection so that we can be forgiven. And as a result of that, we want to, and now we can honor God with our lives, verse 18. We can do these things and live a life that fears God because he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he says he lives within us, and he sends his spirit to help us live increasingly wisely and learn what wisdom is like. That's what part of the meal we're about to share together is there to remind us. It reminds all of us of the cost it took to win our forgiveness. If you're not somebody here this morning, no matter how young or old you are, if you're not somebody here who knows what this means personally, and if you want to be forgiven, if you want this to be true for you, then there's good news. Because you can do something about it today. Stop trying to earn this forgiveness yourself. You can't do it. Pray, even in the next couple of minutes, ask God to forgive you, not because you deserve it, but because his son won it for you. Admit that you can't do it yourself. And then ask him to help you to live for him in the week ahead. Don't put it off. If you need to chat to somebody about it, don't put that off out of embarrassment. Don't be afraid to go down to the house of mourning because it's far too important to delay. But if you're a Christian this morning, be reminded that you are completely forgiven. Be reminded of the cost that it took to forgive you, but then ask God's help to live lives that honor him. That remember the fact we can never earn righteousness, but that it's given to us freely. And also remember that the cross shows us we can trust him. No matter what else happens in our life, no matter what pains hit us, we can trust him because if he's willing to sacrifice his son in our place to save us, he's never going to lose us to the pains, storms and battles of this life that we're going to face. So we need to remember death. Because we remember death, we learn to live life wisely, not in our own strength, but because Jesus gives us his own righteousness that we're to pursue and helps us to learn to live wisely too. All we need to do is admit we need help and ask him for it. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for that one righteous man. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his perfect life. And thank you for his death in our place. Father, thank you that even though when we were helpless, while we were still sinners, while we were lost, while you would have been right to destroy us completely, Father, you didn't do that. You loved us and you demonstrated your love by sending your son to die for us in our place. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that whatever the week ahead faces, no matter what trials or joys or pains or delights, I pray that you'd help us all to remember you are a loving, sovereign, good God who wants only good things for us, ultimately to bring us to yourself and so we can trust you no matter what happens. Help us as we think about that now over the Lord's table. Help us as we talk about this afterwards. May we not be people who uh, try and live in the house of pleasure or in the house of feasting. I pray that you'd help us to be people who live in the house of mourning and who are honest about the pains we're experiencing to encourage each other, rebuke each other, love each other better. Thank you for each other. Thank you that you've saved us as a gathered people for your glory. Amen.